Welcome back to What's Up With Your Down There. I'm your host, Miriam Rosenberg, Certified Nurse Midwife at Legacy Emanuel Midwifery in Portland, Oregon. When I first had the idea for this podcast, I assumed that because I'm a midwife, people would mostly ask questions regarding vaginas and vulvas and uteruses. But to my surprise and delight, I got a lot of questions about penises and testicles as well. As a midwife, my specialty does not extend to penises, and as a cisgendered woman, I do not have a penis of my very own. So while I like them socially, they are mysterious to me personally and professionally. Here is what I know about penises. They come in different sizes, shapes, and colors. Some wear turtlenecks, a la Joey, in a mid-90s episode of Friends. When they get aroused, sometimes they get hard, but sometimes they do not, and there are a lot of products marketed to people with penises to fix that issue. Many times, they have two balls at the base of them. That's about it. I essentially regard them as a lovable but bizarre alien life form, with all due respect to those of you that have them. So I asked Dr. Adrian Heckler, who is a urologist at the Vancouver Clinic, to come teach me about penises and testicles. She has seen more penises in her office than most of us will ever see in our lifetime, and completed her residency in urologic surgery here in Portland at Oregon Health Sciences University. So she is supremely qualified to answer your questions about this area. What's up with your down there? 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 Down there. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do in general as a urologist? Sure. I'm a certified general urologist of the American Board of Urology. I focus on surgical interventions for diseases of the kidneys, the ureters, the bladder, and the male and female genitalia, and then diseases or conditions that might be associated with those systems. What are the most common issues that you treat on any given day in the office? So bread and butter is vasectomies, mm-hmm. um, evaluating recurrent bladder infections in women or men, enlarged prostate issues in men, prostate cancer, kidney stones would be the bread and butter. Mm-hmm. More elusive things might be congenital issues or uh, infertility issues uh, in men. What are some of the most common questions that you get in your office? In men, it's certainly the adjustments through ages, anxieties about being younger, and then anxieties about being older, certainly. And then cancer education is a huge part of my job as cancer education. Are there common myths that you think that people have about their penis, their testicles? Are there things that you wish that people knew about their genitals that you feel like are commonly misunderstood? In men, it's primarily, you know, expectations for their function and their performance Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing as well. Do you mean sexual function and performance? Yeah, I do. I do. A lot of the diagnoses for when something isn't working is a personal one. You know, what's, what is my definition of what's not working for me anymore? And that's acceptable. You know, a lot of them are anxious about that. Mm -hmm. And actually the biggest thing is being a female in the field and a lot of them just coming and being anxious about whether I am someone they can talk to and kind of overcoming that expectation is really, is kind of fun most of the time. What percent of urologists are women? Oh, I think it's less than a third. Really? Maybe a quarter. Mm-hmm. It's growing as women become a more prominent member of, like, you know, physicianhood. You see patients both in the office and you also see patients in the hospital or yes. the emergency room. Mm-hmm. What have you learned in your years of practice about things that people should or shouldn't do when it comes to their penis? Erections that last longer than four hours are an emergency. That is true. If you have blood supply that fills the... Uh, fills the penis and lasts too long, the oxygen is lacking to the tissues and they can die. So theoretically, your penis could fall off. So please 
get help. Pursuing things that assist in erections that last too long, like falling asleep with a um, restriction band on or a cock ring or something along those lines would be unsafe. And when you come into the ER, you're going to see me in the middle of the night, and what I have to do is not very fun to alleviate your erection, involving needles and drainage and irrigation. Uh, I think for teenage boys in this country, one thing I've learned is that as uh, being uncircumcised becomes a bit more common, but maybe not the most common, they have a little bit more of anxiety about how they look compared to other people. And it's really nice to maybe teach parents to educate their kids on what, or educate themselves on what it means to be uncircumcised or circumcised, how penises work, how to care for it, and that sort of thing so they can uh, feel more confident about how they look. Taking off from that, how do you suggest to parents that they educate? educate their boys about the way that their penis looks or about circumcision or Mm -hmm. things like that. The complexities of why people do or don't circumcise their children is extensive. And I think one of the most common things nowadays is really just, what does dad look like? Uh, what, What do I know? And let's go with that. And I think that's not unreasonable. It's complicated having a child and knowing how to make decisions. And it's available as a service to two babies. The national recommendations currently are really not one way or the other, whether you should circumcise your child or not. In this country where we do not have significant, you know, infectious risks per se. Again, that's one of the reasons why it's okay to choose what you feel is the most safe from a personal or religious standpoint, certainly from a from a medical standpoint. When you decide to pursue something, you just have to know there's risks. So if you circumcise a baby, there's technically risks of injury to the penis. It's really rare. People do a very good job. It's easier to take care of an uncircumcised penis in the long run. Um, the major risks are rather minimal. I've not met an adult man who has like foreskin regret you know, or that has woken up missing the sensitivity of his foreskin per se. So you've never had someone ask you to recreate a foreskin for them? <laughs> no, I've never met an adult male patient come into the office saying, I miss my foreskin. <laughs> uh, and again, it might be that there's some sensitivity differentiation, but we've never as a society been able to uncover it. Plenty of guys know? seem to have just enough fun with or without their foreskin. So I don't think that can be a factor that you can really predict or ask for for your child. So it's okay. I had an uncircumcised boyfriend in college who insisted to me that if you had your foreskin removed, that it's getting knocked around all through your life would decrease its sensitivity. And I explained to him that it seemed to me impossible scientifically to prove one way or another whether there was a different amount of sensitivity if you had or had not been circumcised as I haven't met an unhappy, uncircumcised adult male in their sexual life because they're missing their foreskin. Not personally, not professionally, but I can't tell you that there's much foreskin regret that I'm aware of. Now, when you do have a foreskin, it is an extra piece of tissue that, you know, isn't a dynamic part of your body. And I don't really think that our society understands that that's important to really take care of. So here are the fundamentals. Uh, Your child, when they're born, if they have a foreskin, they will have little pieces of tissue called adhesions that attach that foreskin to the tip of the penis. And so actually for the first one to three years of life, you really don't want to do anything with that foreskin. Leave it be, let them pee right through it, and they'll be fine 99.9% of the time. As they get to about three years of age and they start to get erections and such things, those little adhesions, those pieces of tissue, they'll start to break down. And then you really want to start encourage pulling back that foreskin. By the nature of urine, if you were to pee on your leg or something and let it sit there, it kind of burns. It's a little noxious. Um, It can be irritating. So if you're peeing through foreskin forever, eventually it's irritating to it and it can cause it to scar. So you really do want to encourage them to pull it back. And what they should be doing is pulling it back. You know, every time they pee, they don't just pee right through it. It'll dribble. It gets wet. dribbles on your underwear. It's just a mess. So pull it back, you let them pee, you put it back down, and then every day you pull it back, soap and water, at least once a day, 
and put it back down. That is the best way to care for your foreskin. You do it throughout your life, and it's important. Do I personally think someone should be circumcised? I don't know. I do think it's more work to be probably uncircumcised. And at this point, the statistics I always tell patients is that, at least on the West Coast, there's actually probably more people who are uncircumcised than circumcised. At this point, nationally, I think it's about (laughs) 50-50. Advice for adult men. It's not supposed to itch. Go see somebody. So if your penis itches, you need to see a healthcare professional. Yeah. Why would someone's penis itch? Well, they could itch because they're wearing a lot of polyester and going on runs. Make sure you're wearing cotton or breathable things. That's generally important. Especially if you are immunocompromised. Maybe you're a diabetic and not well controlled or have some other situation like arthritis or something that's giving taking you medications that makes infections more common. You have a like, high likelihood of yeast infection. Those are particularly reserved for patients who are uncircumcised. Imagine you have this skin that's covering a moist environment that's often wet. So it's a kind of a perfect place for yeast to kind of multiply in. And once that settles into uncircumcised men, it can be challenging to treat and get rid of. It's much less common in circumcised men. When you're a child and you're circumcised, the major complication you can have truly is that the little opening that you pee through called the meatus of your urethra can actually close off from irritation. It's called meatal stenosis. And if you're a little kid or a boy, if your little boy is peeing and all of a sudden his pee is just like a little laser and just shoots across the room, generally up, like if he's facing the toilet and it hits the back wall, you might have meatal stenosis and you should probably come see somebody. It's a quick procedure to fix it, but that's the most common uncircumcised complication you'll see. We were also talking about cool and interesting things you've seen. Uh, what have you had to remove from people's penises in the emergency room? Oh, a fish hook. Oh my gosh. What was it stuck through? Um, he put it in. So there are a population of men who have a compulsion to stick things up their penises. So I've seen lots and lots of things. I've seen a Lego, I'm not sure, in the bladder, an entire telephone cord. I've seen a straw. Some guy tried to catheterize, like lived in the middle of nowhere and couldn't pee, so he tried to catheterize himself with like a bamboo shoot, and that broke off. The fish hook was not not fun. Oh, a string of pearls. I've had someone masturbate to a glass jar, and then it shattered on him. Um, we fixed him up. He's, he's fine. <laughs> Piercing, some of those, like the Prince Albert piercing, goes right through the urethra. If you take that out, you might have two holes to pee through when you're done. Let's move on to the questions that have been submitted by listeners. We have questions about penises, about balls, about birth control, about sex. Really, things came in on a wide variety of topics. Let's do the balls. Okay, we'll start with the balls. The first question we have is, why do testicles breathe? So I'm going to clarify. I think what you mean is, why do they move up and down throughout the day with different situations, like you jump into the pool or you're super scared and they they ride up high or disappear. And then if you're relaxed in a, in a nice hot tub, they're nice and low. Yeah. Okay, so a quote unquote breathing testicle uh, associated with temperature regulation primarily. You have a bunch of cremasteric muscles that surround your testicles and they contract with sympathetic response. So things that scare you, things that make you cold, will make them closer to your body so their temperatures are maintained at a slightly lower temperature than your central body temperature. And then when you relax, they can kind of go out, same if it's hot out, all those sorts of things. It's all about making sure your sperm are in the perfect little commune so that they can mature appropriately. They don't like being quite as hot as your body is, but they don't want to be as cold as it is outside in Portland today. What is testicular torsion? Testicles kind of hang on this long stalk, which is its blood vessels or the spermatic cord, and it comes all the way up into your belly and actually originates from like up by your kidneys. So you have this long stem down to your scrotal sac that holds your testicles. And 
when your testicles descend down through your belly into your groin, they're supposed to kind of snap onto the bottom of your testicles to hold them in place. This thing that's, that connects it is called the gubernaculum. It's a great word. So these testicles, if they don't attach, they're just kind of free hanging on this stalk. And so they're capable of twisting on themselves. So if they twist, they lose their blood supply. And it's like heart attack to the testicles. It's an emergency. And it really tends to mostly happen in boys right as their testicles are maturing or growing. So in puberty is when we tend to see it. 13 years to 17-year-old boys is when they happen. And it is like a light going on. I mean, they will be hanging out, having fun. All of a sudden, they're like buckled over, their testicle hurts, and they're puking. It's classic. It is not like a short kind of evolution of ache in your testicle. That's more of like an inflammatory thing, but if it is like lights on, puking, pain, and their testicle looks funny, like high riding and sideways is often what you see, you go to the hospital because you've got about two to four hours to save that testicle before you have to take it out. Wait, and nothing triggers this? There's not like they have injury or Well, there's always a story. Lots of kids will come and be like, oh, I was just playing basketball and I hit it because they don't know, I mean, what pain's supposed to feel like and such, and oftentimes we miss this and they come in already dead because they just don't know the story. They're afraid to tell their parents or something like that. That. So maybe talking about it with your kids or educating them could be helpful. The good news is if you lose a testicle, we secure the other one so it doesn't happen again, and your other testicle can pick up the duty, and for the most part, you'll be a great young man with lots of kids in the future, and it won't be a problem. And we can put a little prosthesis in there if you really want us to. Just for aesthetics. Oh, yeah. yeah. What do they call them on dogs? Nudicles. Nudicles. <laughs> we should have a better name for I'm assuming that it's a different prosthesis in a dog than what you put in a human, but I'm sure it's made of the same stuff. The next question, uh, does ball stretching affect your sperm count? No, I think you're fine. (laughs) Great. That's the short answer. Just Uh, don't pull them off. So assuming no one has been tugging on your testicles Ah. uh, and you don't have testicular torsion, sometimes testicles randomly hurt for just a second. Mm -hmm. Why is this? Because they're weird complicated and things happen. I mean, there's super mobile parts of your body that are not quite attached and you're super active down there with heavy lifting and activity and they just do, I think, I really think that they just occasionally ache like your back does or your left eye twitches or something. I hear about it a lot. I do not have an acute answer for it, unfortunately. Do you know of anything that helps when it happens? The usual, take two aspirin, hot bath, elevation, sometimes wearing something more supportive can be helpful, Um, and stop doing whatever it was you were doing. Let's move on to the penis. A lot of men have questions about the size of their penis or a lot of anxieties around the size of their penis, too big, too small. Can you tell us what a normal size is for a penis? No. The average penis naturally is six to seven inches, and there's a huge range. I would say many men are around that range. And then there's a difference between what we're talking about, a flaccid penis versus an erect one. You get plenty of penises that change in size with temperature. I see a lot of penises, let's be honest. And they're just different. Everyone's different. Some are narrow, some are long. So what about the micro penis? people mm. who are really concerned because their penis is unusually short? Micropenis is a condition that mostly exists in genetic disorders, so that's a little bit complicated. I've had a few uh, young men who Google it and think that might be their diagnosis, and I would say the answer is no, but yes, there are smaller penises out there. Mm -hmm. And is there anything you can do to make your penis larger? There is no diagnostic things to help. Even a prosthesis, which is where we actually put like inner tubes into the penis with a pump that pumps it up, you can't put anything larger than the skin allows or it'll erode. So any expansion devices that I know of, none of the data in the medical volumes can really provide much for a patient, unfortunately. So speaking of prostheses and helping people to have a larger penis, do you ever help to construct a penis for a trans person who's transitioning from female to male? Sure. So there are people in my 
specialty that do that. I was never trained in it. It wasn't available as a procedure at the time. However, where I trained here in Portland, um, there is someone now who is specializing in it. It was one of my professors, and he's doing a great job. I know that, technically speaking, there are several techniques. One I'm aware of is that you would take a skin graft and uh, create it with a prosthesis, with these inflatable prostheses that you use for... Is it possible to break your penis? Yes, and it's pretty easy to fix. This is how it works. So your penis is made up of skin, and underneath the skin you have this layer called the tunica. The tunica is a rigid, sort of mildly stretchy material that's not too bloody or vascular, and it is basically the, if you think of your penis like a Coke can, it's like the metal of the can, and inside is this huge vascular structure that is like one giant blood vessel, and that's what fills with all the blood, and as it fills and fills and fills, it reaches that that tunica reaches the limit of its stretch, and that's what makes your penis, and there's only a certain amount of pressure that it can handle, so if you push your penis against something as it's rigid and full of its capacity, right, like the pelvic bone of your partner or something like that, and you're thrusting, you can be- you can break that pressure, bend at that point, and it'll rip that, that tunica, that fascial plane, that outside skin that's rigid. And when that tears, all the blood rushes out, your penis starts to look like a like an eggplant where you get a big butterfly bruise on your scrotum and you lose your erection immediately and then you should go to the hospital. I love that it looks like an eggplant, considering that is the preferred emoji for the penis. But really, you guys, this is the emoji for a very injured penis that needs medical attention. So (laughs) Get help. We need a new one. Let's talk about birth control or contraception. Okay. Most of the birth control that's available right now relies on women to use it, do it, have it implanted. What do you know about options for male birth control? Is there anything new? There are some pretty cool options that aren't yet available in America. And they both involve basically reversible vasectomies. So you've got basically two primary options. One, your vas deferens are the tubes that basically bring the sperm from your testicle to your penis. So they're located right above your testicles on either side. You can kind of feel them. They feel like fettuccine if you were to look around. And when you do a vasectomy, you just cut that and leave a gap and don't let any of the sperm cross the bridge anymore. But if you wanted to maybe reverse that at some point, a temporary option, are these two two choices that are, again, not available here yet. And one is they can put like this absorbable gel that they put into that gap and it fills the tube and lets it occlude temporarily on both sides and then it dissolves later. And then the second option is like actually sort of a switch. You can almost put a clip in there that you can open and close. So the person themselves yes. can click it on and off? Mm-hmm. Super rad. I mean, I'm wondering if people can go do like medical tourism in the countries where this uh, has been piloted or if it's even available commercially anywhere or yes. if this is all still investigated. I'm pretty sure it's available in Europe. Honey, we're going to Europe for our yeah. vacation. Okay. Or you could just get a vasectomy. Actually, I, I swear there was an article recently about millennials or, you know, young people talking about the getting vasectomies and then doing reversals mm-hmm. later, which is an unusual thing that I have not seen patients come to me for. But technically, getting a vasectomy is a 99% success rate, and then getting a reversal is an 80% success rate. 85. So 80% of the time, if someone's had a vasectomy and they have it reversed, they will be able to Within 10 child. years. If they wait longer than 10 years, the scarring can be enough that that can be more challenging, and your success rates go down. So one of the questions I got was about vasectomy. So my husband won't get a vasectomy. What can I tell him to make him take the plunge? Vasectomy is the most common procedure around these days. He's got to have like 50 friends that 
you know, he can talk to about how easy these are straightforward and you tell him to grow a pair. So can you talk us through what the vasectomy procedure entails? So it's pretty standard. You, so you are awake. It's like being at the dentist. We have a conversation. Your partner can be in the room with most, pr- most providers as long as they're comfortable, which is usually pretty funny because the wives are saying things like, I had to deliver two children. This is nothing. Just keep it together. <laughs> we usually give you a calming medication like Ativan or something along those lines. And then uh, you lay down. You'll feel me pulling a little bit as I look for the tubes, uh, pressure down there, and, and then you'll feel the pinch and the burn from the needle in the lidocaine. So so you get like a numbing medication in the office. Yes. So I numb it up um, on the, like one side at a time. And so the whole testicle sort of gets numb with time. And then you make a small little opening in the skin. You bring the vas out. We either use clips or remove a segment and tie it off and burn the inside of the tubes. There's several techniques and they're all acceptable for success rates. And then you do it on the other side, you put it back inside and you're done. How long does the whole thing take? 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's pretty quick. How long is the recovery? Most people say it's like a 48-hour recovery. And a lot of people are sore day three just because it's the first day they felt good and started doing something. Um, you know, it's such a spectrum on how people tolerate pain and swelling and discomfort and such things and how obsessed they are with getting back on their feet. The more active you are, the more sore you'll be. Yeah. It is a procedure. It's got a little bit of ebbs and flows for each person. And how common is it to have complications afterwards? I say one in 50 of mine have minor ones where they have an extra question or something or their pains lasted longer than they wanted to. And then, so the national data is that it's 0.1% of them not working, right? Having persistent patency or the sperm still getting through and somebody being fertile still. And so it's really important if you get a vasectomy to drop off your semen sample to confirm it worked. That's a key one. Absolutely. Before you rely on it, make sure that you are shooting blanks. I really think all those urban myths about people's vasectomies not working have to do with them not getting checked. And so, you know, when you make the SNP, quote unquote SNP, you know, there's still a bunch of sperm in front of those tubes that, are for, that all work just fine. And if you don't empty, get rid of all of those with ejaculating before you give a semen sample, there's still stuff that could work. And I think that's where a lot of the stories come from. So what is the stuff that comes out of one's penis after one has had a vasectomy if it's not sperm? Dreams? Imagination? <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, no. Uh, your testicles only provide about 5% of the volume of stuff that comes out when you ejaculate. So only most of everything you ejaculate, 5% of that is sperm. The rest of it's coming from organs called the prostate and the seminal vesicles. Those are located sort of at the base of your bladder, right kind of under your, like where you sit almost, if you were to point straight upwards from where you sit behind your testicles. Those organs provide a bunch of the fluid and nutrients and all the things that help the sperm work so they can get to the egg. That's where, So you'll still have fluid, there just won't be anything in there when they say blanks. Vasectomy reversal is a feasible procedure. It's a little bit fancier than a vasectomy. You have to be asleep for it. Uh, I have to use a microscope and I put the two tubes back together we're using um, a suture like no thicker than a strand of hair. So it's quite delicate, um, but it works pretty well. And it's always fun to help people have babies. Will insurance cover it most of the time? No. Vasectomies no. are often covered by insurance, which is a complicated thing since so much women's health care is not covered. However, reversals are considered co- what I would say cosmetic or elective. So they're out of pocket. Wow. And they can be 5000 to $10,000 depending on where you get done. Next question. My boyfriend says his penis is too big for condoms. Can that actually be true? I mean, there are so many condoms out there. I would say the answer is no. You should try them out and you prove it to yourself. One of my midwife colleagues, whenever she gets this question, will take a condom and stretch it over her head just to demonstrate <laughs> that there is no way that I, that person cannot wear a condom. And I'm impressed <laughs> by her fortitude. <laughs> Speaking of other things regarding sex... Are there techniques that you recommend to help reduce premature ejaculation? So coming too soon. 
Oh, that's a tough one. Again, the definition of premature ejaculation is when it's too soon for you. There are small things you can do, like sensitization, for example. You can wear a condom. That can help make things a little bit less sensitive. You can use numbing medication. That can be helpful. The data on it's a little questionable as to whether it really helps. And then if it's a really like pathologic problem, there's actually medications that some people take that that one of the side effects to them happens to be delayed ejaculation. And in those patients where this is a huge issue, which is rather rare, they can be helpful. I have not really seen that Viagra as an option. There's our, our men that ask for that would really help because Viagra helps with erections, but it's not going to change the nerve innervation that affects ejaculation. I suppose if you're someone who has premature ejaculation, another option would be to have one ejaculation and then reinitiate intercourse or stimulation to get another erection that would probably last longer as well. Can men do Kegel exercises and do you think that that would affect the rates of premature ejaculation? So physically, sure. They have the same muscle group down there that women do to help with those exercises. I don't personally have a reason to encourage a man to do it. The only men that I see who have done them have problems. Like they tend to be sore down there, uh, have some pelvic pain issues from excessive use of that muscle group. Men have a different anatomy than women, and and women are doing Kegels primarily for urinary issues. I would primarily be using Kegel exercises to teach women ways to stay dry from a urine standpoint. That doesn't apply to men. They have two doors that keep them dry um, and a longer resistance because they're pee hole is I'm sorry, very long. They have long. two doors that keep them dry? They do. They have two sphincters. Sphincters are doors that keep things on the inside of our bodies till we're ready to get rid of them. We have an anus that's a sphincter and we have a urethral sphincter as well as a bladder neck in men. Women don't have both. So, And our urethras, the tubes we pee through, are like two centimeters long. So we're just not designed very well to keep things inside as well as men. Kegels are not used for anything other than that primarily, so I wouldn't encourage it. It's a really rare circumstance in older men where it's useful, but that's it. The next two questions are actually both about issues about infection. Can men get tested for human papillomavirus? Unfortunately, not that I'm aware of to date. Mm -hmm. Women can get tested for human papillomavirus, usually as part of a pap smear test. And there is also, of course, uh, immunization that both little boys and little girls. Yes, little boys and little girls can get the vaccine. We're suggesting that you get it to help prevent getting human papillomavirus, but unfortunately, at this point, we don't have a test yet where we can tell men whether or not they carry the virus and could transmit it to a partner. Until that vaccine was created, I feel in a lot of ways, personally, that HPV is almost an epidemic in our country. It is ubiquitous, and you're not at fault if you have it. You're not wrong. It is so common. It is so much a part of specifically a generation of people who were exposed to it until the vaccine came about. And uh, it's so important to maintain health and regular exams so you can make sure that uh, complications from it don't arise. Thanks for that. Mm -hmm. Can men give bacterial vaginosis to their partner during sex? So if a man has sex with a woman, is it possible for him to transmit bacterial vaginosis to her? So the answer is no. It's not a contagious disease um, in any way. So you can't really... You can't give it to someone else. Does it come about sometimes because of intercourse? Sure. Um, The way I sort of think about it is that we all have our little natural flora in our bodies and our partners have different ones. And when we intermingle those things with their penis inside your vagina, those bacteria can kind of become compromised because their bacteria can take over your flora and it become un- it's just another way that things become unbalanced in your vagina. And bad luck a little bit sometimes, but it's not anything you're doing wrong. It doesn't make you dirty. And 80% of women are going to have a round of bacterial vaginosis at some point in their life. Yeah. And I, while I 
laugh a little bit because we tend to we want to blame it on the men folk. I don't know that we can actually blame this one on the men folk. No. I think this is something that just happens. Like you said, sometimes it's just some bad luck or something throws off your body's natural balance. We're actually going to dedicate an entire episode to bacterial vaginosis because there are so many questions about it. But I did want to ask our, our resident penis expert here her her perspective on it as well. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Heckler, for coming on the show and explaining all things penis to us. Dr. Heckler works at the Vancouver Clinic, so if you have questions that didn't get answered on the show, you can always schedule an appointment to see her. So there you have it, folks. The penis. I hope you learned as much as I did on today's episode with Dr. Heckler from the Vancouver Clinic. But if you're left with more questions, as I mentioned, you can call in with your questions at 503-660-8689, or you can submit questions to what's up with your down there at gmail.com. To be clear, the views expressed in this podcast do not represent the views of my wonderful employer, Legacy Health System, or Dr. Heckler's, the Vancouver Clinic. Furthermore, this podcast is for your amusement and education only, and it is not a substitute for the medical advice of a skilled healthcare provider. Thanks so much for tuning in. I look forward to answering your questions on our next episode. This podcast was made possible by a generous community grant from the American College of Nurse Midwives and the Francis T. Thatcher Foundation. Original music by Joe McKenzie, with vocals by Christina Cano. Artwork by Sarah J. Elliott. This podcast was produced at KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon. KBOO.FM. Thanks for listening. KBOO.